The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in September 2007. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we welcome the acclaimed playwright Horton Foote. Hello, Horton. How are you? How are you? Fine, thank you. Let me just run through a few of your credits. Your first play was produced in 1941 off-Broadway, a play called Texas Town. So you've been in the business a long, long time, as it said. Uh, you have many, many credits uh, to, your, to, to your credit, including recipient of a Pulitzer Prize for Drama for The Young Man from Atlanta, Academy Awards for the screen adaptation of To Kill a Mockingbird, the original screenplay of Tender Mercies, an Academy Award nomination for the screenplay A Trip to Bountiful. You've done much, much work Broadway and off-Broadway. You have also done much work in the early days of television, Playhouse 90 and the Philco Theater and many of the old shows of television. We'll talk about all of that. You have a new show, which actually is not new. It uh, first ran in 1989, I believe, at the McCarter Theater in New Jersey, but it is new in New York, now running at primary stages, and uh, has just opened a show called Dividing the Estate with a wonderful cast headed up by Elizabeth Ashley, Arthur French, Hallie Foote, your daughter, um, Penny Fuller, Gerald McCraney, and the, uh, the the publicist has given me a sentence about the show, which is a very brief description, a 12-character human comedy about a family that must confront its past as it prepares for its future. So that doesn't tell you a lot about the show Dividing the Estate, but the title basically does. It's basically a, a woman, her three adult children and grandchildren, dividing up her her estate, the family estate. Well, it, it is, except that she doesn't want to do that. She doesn't, but some it's, of them it's do. It's the pressure put on her that is mainly the kind of the thrust of the action. Uh-huh. And she's um, all-powerful. She's maybe aging, but she has a strong will. And for some reason, she's just fixed on keeping the estate together. Well, it's, been, it's an estate that has been in the family for generations. Well, yes, and that's another uh, ambiguity, which was little known, but that they were from, they were carpetbaggers, which in Texas was not a very nice name. And they came down, or their their forefather came down and was a Union soldier. Liked it so much that when the Confederacy was finished, he came on back. And there are many stories about how he accumulated his estate. Well, the, the, the show is set in a fictional town called Harrison, Texas. That's right. Many of your shows have been set in Harrison. And this is all fictional, you know. Oh, yes. But much of it, I, I would presume, is based on people you've known growing up because you're from Texas <laughs> yourself from that same area. Parts of them. Uh-huh. I take a little of this and a little of that and, and recreate. I was struck by the fact that the show, set in 1987, premiered in 89, and a key factor in the show was the severe economic downturn of 87. Of course, there was a stock market crash that year, savings and loan problems. And it struck me that it keyed off something perhaps a little more topical at the time than than many of your plays do. Your plays are so much more thematic. Were you trying to write about that specific event of what was happening economically? No, not not consciously. But I'm aware of the fact that it's repeating itself now. And that the people having their houses foreclosed and and uh, the stock market's in a mess. 
and our country's in a mess. So I didn't choose this <laughs> this period, and I would forsake the, having a production of the play to get out of this slump. I don't. I think you could enjoy the play, though, with whatever the conditions are. I think it's because the actors are so warm and and sharing and indefatigable. They just they just go. Well, let's talk about the actors. Um, as John already mentioned in the introduction, many of your plays feature your daughter Hallie Foote. Yeah, and. Do you write the plays thinking about where she might end up in them? No. Because she's impeccable. Yeah. Never, never. Bountiful was written 50 years ago. So she obviously was not the model for that lady. Uh, But it's just that she's versatile. And I didn't, in, in scheduling this production... I didn't really see where what she would do, and then, luckily, we've decided the part she's playing. What are there Horton Foot actors? We sometimes hear about Edward Albee actors and other playwrights who have particular actors who are associated with them. Are there particular people or particular qualities that you well, like to see? Through the years, I have found people that I claim and always go back to. And uh, but you know, we don't get to do so many plays. There was a time when Broadway was flourishing, and and a playwright had a season that was expected of him. Uh, well, you just get you have to make your own season these days. And lucky for we have, we have theaters like Signature Theater, and the one we're in now. Uh, because it's and, and there are four or five others around that through selling t- subscriptions create a, a climate and a home for for the playwright well can you talk a little you've mentioned signature I was certainly asking about actors but signature in particular early in their <clears throat> career uh, Jim Houghton the artistic director there said let's literally do entire seasons of yeah. playwright's work and this was uh, probably in the mid-90s that, that the season was done of your work what was that like to know that you had three shows that were going to be done in a season in New York and we should say probably the first time in many many years that, that you knew that was going to happen yes well it was I welcomed it. I, I loved it, and I loved I loved Jim, and I loved Signature. Uh, but he made certain restrictions. Um, he would do a play that had been done in New York, and he would do a play that was first being seen in New York, but he wanted an entirely new script. It had not been seen, and it had not been seen by anybody. And that scared me, because <laughs> that's uh, that's like writing on demand, and I'm not always in the demand. Of writing. But you're so prolific; you must have had something in the pipeline. Well, what happened was, fortunately, I had a play that I had been, we'd been living in. My family and I had been living in New Hampshire, and I'd done a lot of writing there, 
And uh, I had written a play, but I couldn't get beyond the first 20 pages. And I read somewhere that Catherine Ann Porter said that to get to a work that you're stuck on, put it in a drawer and forget about it. And she did that to one work, and she came back 25 years later and didn't change a word, but was able to finish the work. Now, I don't know <laughs> that that's going to work too many times, but I went back to Texas because they had a few weeks, months off, and I was driving around looking, seeing how it changed and not changed, and I came to a house that had been boarded up. And that morning, I had been invited to a brunch. And, and I went to the brunch. And this lady came up to me and she said, Horton, you may not remember me. Do you remember? And I said, oh, being a southern gentleman, I said, indeed, I do remember you. Didn't know who she was. Finally, someone graciously called her name. And I realized she was the 18-year-old girl I'd been thinking about for this play I couldn't finish. I went home and finished the play. What was that play? What? What was the play? What, which of your plays was it that? It was, um, I'll think of it before we out. Well, sorry to put you on the spot. <laughs> well, you, you grew up in Wharton, Texas, which I gather is not unlike Harrison, Texas. Harrison <laughs> is very much like Wharton. Yeah. And many of the characters... As much as I can make it. <laughs> many of the characters that you've written over the years, and and more than probably more than half your shows are centered in Harrison, uh, Texas, yeah. are they not? Yeah. And many of the characters were drawn from people either that you knew uh, yourself or stories your father told you, tales That's your right. father told you. That's right. Who was a merchant in, uh, in yeah. Wharton. Yeah. What, what were some of those stories, and what what characters did they then inspire, for example? <clears throat> well, every, every character I've written about this play in Texas, uh-huh. of Wharton, is made up of that. So you can name the character, and I'll tell you. So if somebody were to go through Wharton, Texas, they'd see a lot of your people there. Well, not now. <laughs> not nowadays, maybe. But, yeah. <laughs> because, uh, <laughs> maybe we're, gone. <laughs> we're advanced age right now. <laughs> Well, the, the the characters in this show in Dividing the Estate, were they based on people that you knew? Yeah, partly. Yeah. There is one little uh, little passage in the play where uh, I, I think it's Son, that's the name of one of the characters, uh, is talking about, he keeps referring to his grandfather and Mama, the, the, the character played by uh, Elizabeth Ashley, keeps saying great-great-grandfather. Mm-hmm. And your own great-great-grandfather did, in fact... Uh, acquire land in Texas, much as it was the case in the show where the great-great-grandfather had acquired land. So there's something somewhat autobiographical in a sense in this show, isn't there? Well, lots of autobiographical, but this particular thing does not happen to be. Oh. Because we were not Yankees, ever. No, no, not that he was Yankee, but that <laughs> I know, but that's the had, whole had, thing had, had about that, that was she's hanging on to, mm-hmm. and that made them very distinct. There were a number of families that were considered Yankees. The the two young uh, granddaughters are horrified to find out that they have Yankee <laughs> <That's> blood. <right. laughs> they think they're pure Southern, pure Texan, don't they? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. When you're writing uh, using real people as the template for your plays, I saw that uh, an earlier play of yours produced at Primary Stages a couple of seasons ago, The Day Emily Married, was a play that you didn't want to do until some of the people were gone. Yeah, and do you when you're writing from the real people? Do you sometimes keep it that close to yes, the truth? Yes, I do. 
I have about five plays now that I'm <clears throat> waiting. Really? Still? Yeah, because what's the point, you know? Because it, it, I'm not really writing about anybody, but there's, there's a lot of assumptions going on, and people do, you know, they get close to the truth, maybe, but never really. Well, how, how did the good citizens of Wharton react when they would see themselves embodied in some well, of the Well, they didn't much pay much attention. Really? No, they they are very self-sufficient. They're not <laughs> worried about me. Uh, it, uh, you know, it depends on the thing. For instance, when I got the the um, Academy Awards, they just went crazy. And my phone just rang and rang and rang and rang and rang. I thought I'd gotten elected president. <laughs> but when I got the Pulitzer Prize, I went walking downtown thinking people would congratulate me. Nobody said a word. <laughs> well, is that because television and film is available to them that's there right. and, and oh, the theater that's is right. not. Absolutely. This is the history of our theater now. We have to work to find an audience. Hmm. So how did you come out of a small town in Texas which had at best the occasional touring tent show? Do you know what decide, a tent show is? Well, tell us about a tent show. Well, for this town, many towns in the South, small towns, they're an event. They come once a year. They have a whole circular thing, and they go from town to town to town to town. And they come here in Wharton, just like clockwork, and it was always in the early fall when the cotton was coming in. So people had a lot of money because they were segregated, but they were very popular and... um, they did, they had a, a company. They had a, what they called the Toby, who was played the old country eccentric characters, the comedian, really. They had the juvenile. We had the leading lady. They had the hero. They had about eight actors. And they would set up the tent and start their season. And it would run from a week. Then they would pack up and leave. But I was, that's why I became fascinated, and I don't know why. I'm, I have a hunch, but it was just, to me, just very glamorous. And your parents actually encouraged your interest in theater? No. They did not? Well, I, they didn't know about it. Oh. They, I, I, we used to take walks together, my father and my mother and myself, <clears throat> and we would pass by one house, of a gentleman, very white-haired and looking very profound, sitting on his old porch, and my daddy would always say, hello, and he'd say hello, and then we'd go on, and as we went far enough so he couldn't hear us, he said, that's Mr. So-and-so, and he was called in the cotton fields of Mississippi to come to Texas and preach, and I heard this, and one day I got to thinking about a call. And I thought, well, I think I have a call to act. And whether <laughs> I'm making it up or whether it really happened, I believe it because I've thought about it so many times. And, and I, I didn't know what a call was. So I asked my daddy, I said, Mr. So-and-so has gotten a call. What does that mean? 
And poor Daddy thought I'd had a call to preach, and he got very nervous. <laughs> he said, well, he doesn't, he doesn't preach anymore. <laughs> but I finally had to tell them because they didn't, they, I didn't want to go to college. Uh-huh. And I had to kind of think, and then a wonderful woman, she was very young at the time, had just finished college, and she came to the high school and um, was a, a speech teacher, and she was going to put on plays. Well, I got to her, and I told her I was interested in acting and uh, very nervous about it because I didn't want my parents to know. So she put me in everything she did, and <clears throat> she did a one-act play that was an original and uh, was entered into the one-act play contest. So she cast me in the play, and uh, it was uh, three characters three friends in college and one of them had a dope addiction and the others didn't know that and on this day he began to have a seizure he wanted he was out of his whatever wanted and then they it caused all kinds of repercussions and but when when it was all over the judges called her and she thought she was going to get the best play. And she went, and she said, they said to her, is that little foot boy afflicted, or is that acting? <laughs> <laughs> so they, how did you get from the one-act play where the judges thought you were afflicted well, to minute, New York? Oh, did I cut you off? <laughs> they gave me the prize for best actor. Because <laughs> you weren't afflicted. <laughs> no, that's just right. So, so it really was acting. Yeah. Okay. But I'd never seen... I didn't... The most I knew about dope was a lady we knew that was a paragoric theme. <laughs> well, you, uh, I guess you were still a teenager. It must have been right out of high school. You went to California and studied <clears throat> then at the Pasadena I'm 17, Playhouse. 17. 17, uh-huh. yeah. That must have been momentous to leave Wharton, Texas, go well, to Well, they wouldn't let me leave right away. <clears throat> you're, you're, I you're, had to sit out for a year. Your, your parents? So I went, to, yeah, my parents wouldn't. Uh-huh. They said, we'll back you if you wait a year and really know what you want to do. I was 15 and then 16. Uh-huh. And I went to California, went to Dallas. My grandmother was there for the winter, and I stayed with her, and I was in the movie house. Hmm. And I came back, and I said, uh, I still want to go. And so my daddy said, okay. Hmm. I don't know what, I think now with my own children, I don't know that I could have done it. <laughs> but fortunately, he did. Fortunately, he recognized you had a passion for it and allowed you to, to follow that passion. Yeah, but he kept worrying about the boy, man there, who was a painter mm-hmm. and uh, evidently gifted. And he went to Princeton mm-hmm. and studied. And he came back, and they built him a studio on their farm. And he went in there for three days, and then he never went back. Mm-hmm. So that was a constant reminder to me that be very sure what you're doing. And we should point out this was during the uh, Depression, which was hard times for everybody, oh, but especially terrible. where you lived in Texas. Terrible. And my father, without knowing to me, uh, sold the only piece of property he had to put me through Pasadena. Wow. I didn't know that until uh, 20 years later. My mother told me. Hmm. So Amazing. you went out to Pasadena, yeah, and then a couple of years later headed for New York. Yeah, well, 
<clears throat> not directly. I I got a job um, in a working in a at, at a summer theater in Martha's Vineyard, and uh, someone knew my work at, from California as a student, and they had a school as part of their stock company. But only girls in those days could afford to go. So they had a lot of girls paying students, and they needed boys, which they gave scholarships to. So that got me out in the East. And my father, when I left, he said, here's $50, and when that's gone, don't come back because I'm not going to give you anything. Hmm. And I believed him. <laughs> I think he would have given me something, but... Well, you made your Broadway debut in 1939 as an actor, yeah. and apparently the critics didn't see the same acting talents that your judges back in, in Wharton saw, <laughs> and your your career was very short as an actor, but then you had your first... Uh, well, not play. because of the critics. As a matter of fact, they were very good to me. What? I played a, 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 an Irishman who was uh-huh. half drawn and quartered, Ooh. and... Uh, but there was a statue. Sounds gruesome. And these statues all came to life. But it's by a very good Irish playwright. Uh-huh. They, they were one-night plays, and they just simply nobody cared about them. Well, your your first produced play was in 1941, off-Broadway, called Texas Town. Now, that's where I got uh, some stern advice. Uh-huh. Brooks Atkinson loved the play, but he didn't like oh, my that's, acting. Oh, that was the one, the acting yeah. review. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Had, had the wrong play, but okay. So you decided not to be an actor at that point. Not not literally. As a matter of fact, I was determined to show him. Uh-huh. But I soon got over that. That was petty, and, and he was so gracious about the play. What what, what was uh, Texas Town about? Was that about Texas Wharton, Town? It was basically <laughs> basically the, the place we first first meet Harrison, Texas. I guess that's right. About the people who live in this. Yeah, I wasn't town. calling it Harrison at the time. I didn't start calling it Harrison until about five years later. Uh-huh. Why, why Harrison? There is a Harrison County in Texas, but no no town named Harrison, I guess, is there? Well, no, but there is a Harrison, Texas, <laughs> in another part of Texas, which I didn't know about. Right. It's closer to Louisiana. Yes, it yeah, is. Harrison and, County. And uh, Sandy Dennis came down to do a play, and she, was, she said, I kept asking where Harrison about Harrison, Texas, and she said, there's no Gulf breezes there, let me tell you. She <laughs> said, I said, well... I miss it. I can't help it. I'm keeping mine. <laughs> Do you recall the spirit of New York theater at the time that you were breaking in as a writer? Can you talk about how the opportunities came for you in that well, period? <clears throat> actually, they came through my acting. And uh, we we got together. We studied with the Russian, Tamara Dekahanova and Vera Solovyova and Andreas Jelinski. And there were a group of us with an advanced class, and we didn't know where to go because it was very... New York, Broadway was having difficult times. And uh, so the Russians said, you know, they led at least the leaders in it. It didn't me, not me, but uh, that we should start a group. And then do our own plays. And uh, we had a wonderful woman named Mary Hunter, who was a 
on the radio in Easy Aces. She was kind of a foil for the, the t- man and woman. And the only one who had was working had a steady job. And she kind of took it over. And she was very knowledgeable, a lot of it. And we decided to only do American plays. And that was a very rare thing then because there was not many people in the out there that were interested in American plays. And uh, that got us started. And then we were doing improvisations to let us know about each other's section. And I was always doing Texas. And Agnes DeMille came down, and she was going to do a, a work with us. And I was doing my thing about Texas and I don't know what all. And she called me over. And she said, uh, have you ever thought about writing? I said, no, I sure haven't. She said, but I think you have good material. You should think about it. Hmm. I said, but what, what, what do I do? She said, write about what you know. And it was kind of a, a motto for me. And Agnes and I have remained friends all of her life. <clears throat> and uh, anyway, she got me started. There's obviously very good advice right about what you know. And obviously the people of Wharton, Texas, you <laughs> knew them very well. It's one of those small towns where everybody knows everybody's name, That's everybody right. else's business as yeah. well. But also you grew up, you were a teenager when the stock market crashed in 1929. So you grew up during the Depression. Yeah. And then you were really um, coming into your, your writing period during World War II. Yeah. How much effect did that have, the Depression <clears throat> and World War II, on, on, on your, your writing? Well, it, it, didn't, it didn't have a lot. No. Because, first of all, I wanted to go into the Army, and I was, I, they wouldn't take me because I had a problem. Uh-huh. Um, but all my friends, all, a lot of my, Joseph Anthony and people that I'd worked with and were going in, I was very disappointed. But by my not taking me and staying with the theater, I got to do a lot of work. And then uh, two years after Texas Town, we did a play called Only the Heart down in the Provincetown. And it had a a lovely reception. And they decided to take it to Broadway. And uh, so they had to find a star. So we were searching for a star. And uh, a man that called himself (coughs) the um, George Kaufman of Paris took it under his wing and showed me how to make it commercial. When we ruined it, not that's a bold statement and not really true, but it wasn't as good as we had it earlier. So it didn't last, and I had to work. So I got a job in a bookstore because I knew Faulkner had done that and Sherwood Anderson. So I decided to try my hands at that, and. Uh, they made me assistant manager, and one night, a young lady walked into that bookstore, and that was my wife. Mm-hmm. So I began to have the philosophy that things go wrong can also go right. And then you were married in 1945, so yeah. that kind of sets, sets the period, the end of, end of World War II. Yeah. Yeah. It struck me in, in reading up before this conversation that you were writing for the theater, before there was television. Yeah. <clears throat> and I you, never heard of it. I mean, you know, we almost didn't know about television. 
I was I had the first I, my first experience. I, Perry Wilson and I, they hired us to do a one night play, and uh, we went to the studio. And in those days, you had to they put a mark where you had to go, and then you had to stay there and play your scene. And then when you you stepped away from the camera when you were over. It was a straitjacket. Because the camera was locked off That's and you moved right. in and out of the frame. That's as... right. And I thought, this will never get any place. I mean. <laughs> so how did you come? Because you'd, you'd had a couple of Broadway shows, but you, you came to be part of a, a troupe of writers who really created the television drama, the television play. Yeah, well, <clears throat> uh, I first went to... Oh, this is very complicated. Do you want to know all this? Sure, sure. Well, I I got interested in in modern dance, and uh, I knew I couldn't dance, and I physically was not able to. But I became friends with dancers, and um, who also came and worked with, with the American Actors Company. And there was one called Valerie Bettis, who was, I think, one of the great dancers in, in that period, certainly, and a young woman from Texas. And uh, so she was very interested in combining dance and theater. And so she kept talking about this. And I had also become interested in Martha Graham. And uh, then I got in friends with Sanford Meisner, who was a big group theater actor, and he uh, taught at the neighborhood playhouse. So he asked me when he went off to do things in the theater to take over his classes, and I did. And then they got to know my work, and they said, uh, "Next spring we do a, a, a sit, we do a work written f especially for this." the neighborhood playhouse, and would combine all the departments, acting and dance and music. So they asked me if I would write one. I never had, but I was this time very interested in the whole theory. Then I wrote it, and they said, we're going to like it, and Martha's going to choreograph it. Well, I almost fainted, because I, you know, had heard she was difficult in her own way, but so talented. And Louis Horst, which was her <clears throat> composer, was going to write a score. So uh, the play was called The Lonely, and uh, I waited, oh, I was to direct. And uh, the day Martha arrived, and she read it, and I thought, well, what do I do? So I was, of course, thrilled that she was there and she was so humble in a way and bragged on the play and and she said I want to do certain things but watch me because I have a tendency to overdo and uh, we became close friends I would we both lived in the village and often we would take the bus together and uh, it changed my life because first of all it was a, a probably one of the great geniuses of our time that was riding the buses and, uh, you know, never complaining and sharing her gifts. 
So I don't know how I got started on this, what I was trying to prove, but it it made me go to Washington for four years, <clears throat> five years, and start a theater based on the theory of dance and 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 you know and and, and we had scores. And then one day I thought, well, this is all wonderful, but I really miss people talking and situations. So I changed, and I wrote the chase and went back to New York. Well, your, your your television work in the late 1940s and through the early 50s, television uh, was looking for programming. It was a brand new medium, had never existed before, so they're creating a lot of work. And you wrote many uh, television plays. Just play started um, right at this period, when I, mm-hmm. and I got into that again. So much of my life has been chance, really, mm-hmm. if you look back. Because a friend of mine, Vincent Donahue, came down to start the theater in in Washington, and he got back, and he had a friend called Fred Cole, mm. and so Fred Cole gave him some jobs directing, and he got he asked me if I would do something, and by that time we had a child, and I couldn't fool around very much, and so I thought, well, uh, and Vincent. Got in touch with a man named Martin Stone, who did a thing called Howdy Doody. Mm-hmm. Now that's as far away from Martha Graham as I could get, <laughs> <clears throat> but I figured, well, I'll take a chance. So I spent a year producing and supervising a writer because they called the Gabby Hayes Show, uh-huh. and every week they do a historical event. Right. And we did the Alamo in a tiny studio. (laughs) And uh, so from there, then Fred Go asked me to write a play, and I did. And then he liked it, and he was, we gave you an advance, you know. You had to go in and tell him what you were going to write. And he often laughs and used to say that I came in and I said, I'm doing a play about an old lady. And that's all I said. And he said, well, that's good enough. Go ahead and write it. And that was a trip to Bountiful. So Trip to Bountiful was first a television play. Yes, it was. And I see... With Lillian Gish. With Lillian Gish. And I'm sitting here with the New York Times Review. It was obviously a success enough on television for Fred Coe and the Theater Guild to want to put it on stage. It had a it had a wonderful reception, and this I hadn't understood this. The night it was done, and we did it in the NBC building on Sixth Avenue. For, for, for which show was this? Playhouse Tri- ninety or Philco and Goodyear. Philco. Mm-hmm. The one one week was Philco, and one week was Goodyear. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And you, I was in the studio, and I'd been there all day watching the stuff and. Uh, then you went, went out in the green room, they called it, and there was a telephone much like this. And I went out there, and the person who was there, the phone began ringing and didn't stop. And he said it had been that way ever since the show was off the air. Hmm. And uh, I didn't even know the New York Times reviewed it. 
but it was reviewed by the audience, and that's when they started to think about a play and everything else. Well, I actually am sitting with the Times review of when it was transferred to the stage, yeah. not not of the original television yeah, version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I should say, certainly for most of our audience, Trip to Bountiful is one of your best-known works. Yeah. It was certainly the original television version done on the stage, made into a marvelous film in the mid-'80s. It's very striking to me, and I would not normally do this, but I think at a distance of of 54 years, this this is not as awkward as it would normally be. The New York Times loved Lillian Gish. Oh, yes. But wasn't so fond oh, of no. the trip I, to Bountiful. And forgive me, I'm going to just read a little bit of this. This does not make a very substantial play for a whole evening, nor does Mr. Foote make things any better by underwriting. He is a scrupulous author who does not want easy victories, and that is to his credit morally. But he might also do more for the theater by going to Bountiful himself as a writer, providing his play with more substance and varying his literary style. So you went from the phone ringing off the hook on to Broadway no, to praise not, for... Not quite so. Not quite so fast, <clears throat> but to, to great reviews for Lillian Gish. But uh, they didn't love the play, which is, well, is amazing to me at this distance. Well, particularly because he liked my first play so much. Did you read that review? I did. <laughs> yeah. I did. And that's the review I would cherish getting today. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how can you figure that out? Mm-hmm. Uh, all I know is that it's lasted 50 years. Exactly. And you you New- had the last laugh. And the New York Times reviewed it again and gave it a the kind of review you'd pay for. <laughs> so, And everybody thinks it's a big success, so... Absolutely. I want to ask you a specific question about Trip to Bountiful. Trip to Bountiful, again, at a distance of 54 years, is a play that is incredibly insightful about a woman's longing for the past. And I'm wondering what your perspective on that play is now. Well, I've always always loved the play. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I uh, write about older people a lot. And uh, this was written by a member of my family, about a member of my family, that I admired and respected a great deal. Um, you wouldn't, even she wouldn't know it if she read the play. I mean, but she was the, the sense of endurance and being able to endure and wanting so little, but wanting certain things very strongly, uh, which is the essence to me of Mrs. Watts mm-hmm. in the play. And um, I don't know. I uh, and then, and as you know, it's done a great deal. And um, I, for, for instance. Things change, but I was going to do the film of Bountiful. I don't know how I came about it, but I was working on a film that I'd written called 1918, and there was someone... Oh, I read the New York Times, and the obituary page was about uh, Richard Burton, 
I read that Shirley Knight had testified at the, his service that she he loved a hymn, Come Home. And so I decided to look up the hymn. I didn't use that in the original production. I decided to put it in the play and into the film. Mm. And it's, I think it's a lovely hymn. It, they've made recordings of it, and so it's just, it's just interesting to me how life hands you so many things. And that's one, one gift that I was grateful for. Now when they did the other, the later productions, because it had been so successful in this production, they went back to the original. Hmm. Well, uh, on a trip to Banford, uh, any of your other work that has originated, say, on television, then later is done in a theater, and then in the case of a trip to Banford on film, how much reworking of the writing do you do? Obviously, the different mediums, TV to film, uh, TV to stage, may not be that different because back in those days, no. the, the television shows were being produced much as a play would be produced. Yeah. But how about to the film? Was it necessary to do a lot of changing? <clears throat> the only really change was we were able to take the bus ride. Mm-hmm. That was basically the, the biggest change. And then I had to also make a larger first act because the... Um, it was done on television. It was only 60 minutes, mm. and they needed another 30 minutes. Had to expand it. And uh, so I created the character, not because Jessie may appeared in the in the television, but she took a much larger part in, in the revised version. Uh, but particularly for Mrs. Watts, there was not... I mean, there was certain things, but not much. Mm. Well... Actors appearing on stage have to act differently than they do in front of a, a film camera because the microphone can pick up sounds uh, that you can't hear in a the theater. They have to really project to reach the last row of a theater. So the acting style has to be somewhat different in a theater than it does, say, in a film. How about the writing style? Does that have to be any different because film is a different medium? Well, if it is, I don't know it. Uh-huh. I mean, I've gotten by with, because I do know there are certain things. I mean, well, for instance, taking this the journey from... Harrison to Cotton. Um, you know, but I've always loved the fact that Corpus Christi is called, is translated the body of Christ. Mm. So I decided in, wait, in a little bus stop waiting between changing buses, some going to Corpus Christi, I used that. I said, Corpus Christi? Someone said, that means the body of Christ. And this black woman never heard that. Mm-hmm. It's very religious. Wow. So little things like that, you know, uh-huh. you pick up and you use. Well, Howard read a quote from uh, Brooks Atkinson in the New York Times re- Review. Let me read from the current uh, theater critic of the New York Times. Ben Brantley made a statement about you saying that your plays are, quote, quiet, artful balances of everyday minutia and an aching cosmic loneliness. <laughs> Close quote. How do you react to that? Well, I thank him for <laughs> it. It sounds like a very nice compliment, but do, do you feel your plays are as he uh, described? You, you just can't get into that game. Uh-huh. <laughs> you really can't. Yeah, I'm, I'm so fond of Ben Brantley. I don't know him, but uh-huh. I think he's a, he's a great gift to the theater. I don't know. Well, it seems to me that your characters are wonderfully warm and uh, human people. And in the show that uh, that we just saw, uh, Dividing the Estate, they seem like real people with real problems. You seem to have a great uh, uh, knack for writing 
real real parts, not not cardboard cutouts, not, well, not cameras. I try. I thank you for that. I yeah. try. Yeah. I'm curious. John just asked, of course, about the difference theater and television and film. <laughs> you have, over the course of your career, adapted the work of other writers mm-hmm. for stories that you wanted to tell and indeed you yourself have found yourself adapted in particular the chase where you had written the play and Lillian Hellman had at the screenplay um how do you how do you deal with being with having your work changed and how do you approach looking at the works of others well first of all I have to like it I mean I really have to because it's a very it's a very torturous process because you, you have any humanity at all you, the last thing you want to do is to take somebody's work and tear it up and destroy it um, for the sake of ego so that's my first criterion and then I want to be very sure that I won't get winded too soon because you have to stick with a project you know and you really have to follow it through and if it's Somebody else's primary work is an awesome responsibility. At least I feel it is. I was fortunate that, that, that I I did one Erskine Caldwell book, which I can't remember, but Warner Brothers never did it, which was a blessing for me because I didn't really understand it, but I needed money. And I like Erskine Caldwell. Then came To Kill a Mockingbird, Again, Harper didn't want to do it. And so they called me up, and I'd worked with both Mulligan and and Pakula, and they asked me if I wanted to do it. Well, I don't, don't really like adapting. I mean, it's not my first choice. So I was stalling around, and my wife read it, and she said, you better get on that phone. And she said, I think you'd be very sorry. So I read it, and I did like it a lot. And I called up Alan Pakula, and I said, well, I'm ready. And he said, well, Harper, I just have to have you meet her because I think it's wise to do that. So he brought her out to my house. We were living in Nyack at the time. And uh, I can see her right now walking into the living room. And, well, we became kissing cousins, which is the phrase down south. Mm. And uh, we're still very close. And uh, that was a very, not an easy thing, but because it, but Alan, for instance, was very uh, uh, experienced in in film writing. And he said, I think it might be an interesting thing to examine the, the structure of the novel. And instead of having it over two or three years, to make it one year. And then I read a, a review by a well-known avant-garde critic who is not, the avant-garde was not too kind to Harper always. And uh, he said that it was, he, the head of his piece was Scout in the Wilderness. Well, I'd always loved Huckleberry Finn, so I just kind of opened the door for me. And then I've had with Frida the responsibility of using her structure, and I found a way to make it a year. 
So those things were very helpful. And that, of course, was Harper Lee who wrote the, wrote the novel yeah, you're talking yeah. about. You refer to Harper. Yeah. yeah. Now, you had, obviously, great success with To Kill a Mockingbird, and there were a couple of films that came quickly after that, but you mentioned already very early on about your move to New Hampshire, and there is this period that seemed to come at the end of the 60s where you weren't doing either you weren't maybe you were writing but there wasn't as much produced there there weren't did you withdraw from writing for a time yes i did i did really i i look back now and i realize that i was more extreme than i probably should have been but i i i was in i enjoyed the uh theater of that time but i really didn't feel part of it that it's I'm a f- whatever reason I mean the kind of language that became very fashionable was not my language and the themes and the desire to it was a very destructive period in theater I mean they were social theater but and I'm all for that and if that's what one does and practices I'll support them but I can't force myself and it this really wasn't part of me, so I went to New Hampshire to get as far away from theater as I could, and I wrote a lot, but I didn't feel I was reading the New York Times and seeing what was fashionable or this or that or made insecure because one does get insecure, but it seems to be all pervasive so then what brought you back because there is such an outpouring and a prolificness to your writing that seemed to just be pouring out again both on television and film and on stage beginning again in the 80s it seems well <clears throat> I just had stored up a lot of things and I was writing in, in New Hampshire I came back with about five plays and then I, Herbert Berghoff was a friend of mine, and uh, he had a studio, which he did plays, didn't allow critics, and he asked me to do plays there. So I went down and began directing my own plays, which I had never done, and uh, they began doing a lot of my plays, and gradually it, everything calmed down and you didn't have to use four-letter words, you know, to show how manly you were or whatever. And uh, I and I know certain playwrights who I've since become friendly with, and they marvel at the fact that I recovered. <laughs> <laughs> and I must ask that with all of this outpouring of plays, it wasn't until 1997 full 43 years since you had last had a play on Broadway yeah. that you returned. And can you just tell us about, in the little time that we have left, the experience of Young Man from Atlanta? Well, I have to preface it with the fact that it wasn't a lonely time because I had discovered Off-Broadway. And I can't tell you how pro-Off-Broadway I am because it kept me going aesthetically and the best work was being done off Broadway I really was almost 
traumatized by the work I saw on Broadway. It had become so kind of one note and commercial, which is fine if that's how you want to live and how you want to work. But I just say thank heavens every day for all Broadway. And the, the young man from Atlanta was written for off Broadway. Was on my season there at the signature. It was part yeah, of the signature yeah, season. Yeah, and that's where it got the Pulitzer Prize. They already had it before we came to Broadway. That was about two years before the Broadway run. Yeah, yeah, and that, and certainly I was grateful and loved the Broadway production because. Uh, it was a, I don't know, a big step in the in the kingdom, so to speak. Then this may interest you, but the Goodman Theater in Chicago is where the um, where it tried out for when before coming into New York that they're going to do a they're bringing in the company of. A Bountiful. Right. The signature production of Bountiful That's with right. Lois Smith is and going all to be playing the there as part of, we should explain, a Horton Foot season. Yeah. A mini season, a festival at the Goodman, talking pictures starting in Jan- the end of January, two of your one acts, the blind date, uh, blind date and the actor in February, and then trip to Bountiful beginning yeah. in March. Yeah. So people in Chicago will have the opportunity to see that. And of course, we're still- It's a wonderful here. theater, by yeah. the way. And they do wonderful work. And primary stages here in New York does wonderful work, including your current production of uh, <laughs> Dividing the Estate, which is a show that originally, as I said earlier, played at the McCarter in 1989. Did you make any changes for the current run here in New York? Not really. Right. And it's it also played it played in uh, in um, Cleveland, Ohio, at the, the- at, at the theater there. And it, then it went to a theater in uh, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Now, when I saw the play last week, you were in the house, you were watching it yourself in the audience during previews, and you've also been very involved in the rehearsal process. Is that the way that you normally work? Are you yeah. normally that close to a yeah. show? And, and I may go every night. And then do you play, do you, do, you, do you tweak a little bit? Do you change any lines? Do you change anything? Or do you, Not really. No? Not really. I, what I do, sometimes I might feel that the actor should re-examine, and, but I always work with the director. Mm-hmm. I don't get up then. You, you don't talk directly to the actors. You no, let the director do that. No, I don't think that's proper. Yeah, in this case, Michael Wilson, who who yeah, well, he's him. done so many of my plays uh-huh. too. And this is a if you, if you forgive me these anecdotal stories, but Michael Wilson, I was lecturing at North Carolina, and he just finished at the university there, and he came up to me after my lecture and he said he wanted some advice. I said I didn't give advice, but I would if you tell me your problem, I would try to analyze something. And he said, "Well, I've just finished major in theater and in the arts, and I'm trying to decide what I want to do, whether I want to be in television or in cinema or in the theater." I said, "Well, I can't advise you, but I'll tell you what I would do." I'd go straight for the theater. <laughs> well, he's done eight plays of mine now. <laughs> <laughs> well, your, your your daughter, Hallie, is in the show, and she's been in many of the shows you've done. Do you ever give her professional advice or is just no, fatherly, no, fatherly no, advice? No, 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 Fatherly advice to her? If too? she asks me, I'll, I'll <laughs> try to get up to the mark. 
Well, dividing the estate just has opened at uh, primary stages, 59E59 on 59th Street, the theater where it is playing. And Horton, thanks so much for being with us today well, thank you on Downstage Center. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Likewise. Thank you, Horton. For yeah. the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing is available online, on demand, for free from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten. For Downstage Center, that is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.